I want to uh, jump back just for a quick sec to the Rowdy Duty. Um, it was recorded in Port Chester, New York, which um, because my wife is from Belmore, Long Island, um, I went out there and I've been there before and I'm kind of familiar with it. Was what was was it a hard choice to decide which show you guys were going to pick for that release, or was it like that one was just incredible doing that one? Yeah, you know. We'd had some really great shows there. You know, we'd played like Halloween there and stuff. And Seven Willow Street was one of the bigger stages and rooms that we were playing at that time. And I think we ultimately went there. Um, it was not easy to record there. I remember them running the snake out to the van where the board was. And it was not easy. I mean, we had to have really, really long snake. And it was like out a window in the dressing room, out into the parking lot. And it was like, you know, it was like the snake was like this big with all the cables that were going through. And it was not easy at all. Um, I So I, I do think that it, it was chosen specifically because it would have the, the biggest amount of people in it. And, um, and it was, you know, an opportunity for us to get like that that feeling that, 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 you know, we were trying to get that, you know, we had heard on like the, the, the earth tour, the P-Funk, you know, 76, the uh, Denver 76, you know, stuff that we were like, we're always trying to get that level of intensity, you know, to our music, to, especially in the recordings. So I think that we went for size, I think was the reason we chose that place. Were, were you guys playing enough at any point where you kind of didn't have to do day jobs and things like that? Yeah, um, pretty much from the get-go. Um, we were we just constantly played, you know, Tuesday night was rehearsal, and we played, you know, Wednesday through Sunday sometimes if we could get Sunday gigs. And we started to, we once we started really going out to um, play like fraternity parties down in the, in Pennsylvania and Virginia, then we could afford to be out. And then, and then eventually we were able to make it all the way to Colorado for shows. And then we, we had our booking agent and our management company out of Colorado. So, you know, we would kind of base things out of there. We'd be in Colorado for like the whole month of February every year. And we'd spend uh, like the whole month of April down in like New Orleans and gigging all the way down to New Orleans doing frat parties. So, you know, we, what was the question? <laughs> when you were able to just do purely music and not have to worry about day jobs. Yes. That's, and that's how we could do that was by just constantly being on the road. And uh, in order to be on the road, I mean, you really do have to have like a show every night. You can't just be like out there burning money. So um, that's why we would have to, you know, do like eight, nine hours on the road between shows because a lot of these places would have radius clauses and we would, you know, we would have to, you know, as soon as the show was over get, you know, halfway, you know, maybe drive halfway to the next place during the, the night hours when there wasn't so much traffic and then get up early in the morning and then drive the rest of the way so we could be there for like, a, you know, a, a, a two o'clock check in at a hotel. So being on the, on the road is a really a hard life. And after about five years of doing that with Deep Banana, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. But then I did because I ended up with Bernie. And, um, you know, I was amazed that uh, he had a tour like that, too. But, you know, unfortunately, that, that was just what we had to do, you know, because of the, I think it was just really hard to, uh, 
to constantly have, you know, booking that made sense, you know, like, you know, it always seemed like we had to put more and more and more hours between each show because of the, uh, the fact that we had this huge draw and we wanted to make as much money as possible. So we had to do that, which makes it a very difficult life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever get uh, courted or, or talk to any of the major labels about getting a deal? Well, after I left Deep and Out of Blackout, they, they did. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time, I feel like the band really was just wanted to work with uh, the Frog Wings um, label, the Almond Brothers. Um, uh, what do you call it? Yeah, Frog Wings. They, they ended up going with that instead of like, you know, Atlantic or one of the other, you know, majors. Because they just felt like, you know, this was a new um, style of, of they, they didn't want to be like, you know, getting lost in the shuffle of like the big music industry. They wanted to have a smaller label that really kind of understood what they were about, what they were trying to do. Um, and, so when I, and at that point I was working with Bernie and then I, but Bernie didn't work really enough for me to, you know, constantly be on the road anymore because he at that time was doing a lot of other stuff with people like Lauren Hill and and um, Buckethead and Bill Aswell, and, a lot of that stuff. Right, right, and Les Claypool, and and so he uh, was constantly doing his own thing, and sometimes he'd be with George, so he was very busy. So. The Woo Warriors allowed for me to have two other groups that I had. Uh, one which was like my own band. It was called Jen Durkin and the Conscious Underground. And we were such an underground sort of, we had a, a, a percussionist MC. So it was like rap, metal, funk, you know. And it was for me, it was really like the next level of like, because I was really always really into living color and fishbone. And for me, it was it was moving in that direction and I was like yeah I'm down I, yeah, I want to go in this direction you know and I played with this really great guitar player uh, Harold Fro Davis who just had that really you know great style I mean, we played some shows with like the screaming headless torsos and became friends with Dean Bowman and and you know just really felt like oh this is like you know this is getting heavy now you know like I really was digging that sound so that was only like maybe ten gigs a year with that group. About and what year? About what year is that, Jen? That was uh, two thousand one, and then um, and I, I also was in that group with Gary Sullivan, the drummer from the Woo Warriors, and he um, was also the drummer for the Crow Mags, and he had the whole double kick drum thing going on. So it could, it was re it was getting really heavy. Like you know, it was it, it had all of that that punk metal soul energy that I really was like, I was, I never dreamed I would get to be in a group like that, you know? And that was like, I was really into that for a while. And that was when, when the warriors weren't working. And I also got um, work with uh, some friends of mine from Fairfield County uh, that were called the bomb squad. Mm -hmm. And um, they had just lost their singer Javier Colon who was the first winner of ever of the voice uh he was in a band called MCQ with these guys that ended up becoming the bomb squad but before they were the bomb squad which was when I joined the band 
They were called MCQ, and Ian McHugh is the guitar player of that band. And he and Javier had written some really great songs. They had a horn section, and they were kind of like Deep Banana Jr. a little bit, you know, in the sense that, you know, they had the same instrumentation. Deep, deep Banana Plantain. <laughs> exactly. It was like... It was or, exactly. or Plantain, yeah. yeah. Totally. And uh, it was... Um, really fun for me because and they and oh they also had a trumpet player which we didn't have in, in deep banana which i always felt like oh we need a trumpet player oh you know always missing that part you know always wish we had one and uh so it was great because um so that was i ended up being a nine piece band so i went from you know that to from from deep banana being an eight piece being the boss squad which is nine piece and uh we had a lot of fun we actually um were entered by a fan who was a really good friend of mine who was um she was actually the nanny for my my daughter and my son whenever i would take them on the road with me because at this point i had uh, two small children <laughs> and uh, you know we uh she would kind of help me with the kids on the road um sometimes i would have to take them because i'd be out for so long but she entered us in an internet competition for uh for a, a best unsigned band award through coca-cola and the american music awards and the prize if you won was you got to appear on the american music awards well we won out of 1200 bands the bomb squad <laughs> we went to the, the semifinals, which were in la and we we battled against these 10 other bands we all got to go up and play two songs at the knitting factory in la and uh we had all these judges, you know, one of whom was which was was Dick Clark, who loved the band. I mean, he went crazy over the band. Um, and the the night that we won the finals, Dick had us play at the Knitting Factory in um, New York, and that's where. And it was like we won on our territory, our turf, you know, and everybody in the band at that point was living in like Queens or Connecticut, so we were kind of like a New York-based band at that point. So that was like insane, you know, because we were just like, you know, how does this happen? You know, all of a sudden we, we were playing on the American Music Awards. We played after Metallica on the American Music Awards. That that was just unbelievable the way that went down. Because basically we, we won by an Internet vote and then we we got voted in by, you know, I guess it was like the, the manager from the Flaming Lips and in Dick Clark and some other L.A. Um, radio jockeys and uh, had picked us you know to to be the best unsigned band so you'd think that we would get signed no <laughs> we didn't get signed and poor dick clark had a stroke or i think he would have actually really helped us i think that probably would have had a, a much different career had he not right at, uh, literally like a month after we won the american music award and appeared on the show um he had this so it was terribly sad yeah and uh but then i went on to you know to think well you know this is just fun for about a year but you know we didn't really get any we had some interest in small labels but you know nothing like like no one came along to be like you guys are the next big thing and, and i think it was because we were such a big band you know, everybody kept trying to separate me from the group and say, oh, we can give you a record deal, but we're not giving nine people a record deal, you know? And I was not confident nor interested in having just a record deal that just for me, you know? I didn't feel like 
all these bands that I was in were I was, you know, a part of a team. So, you know, and people kept telling me, oh, there's no I in team, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, oh, you should really, you know, you get the record deal and then you just put the, put the band around you, assemble the band around you. And I, you know, I thought about it and it sounded good, but, you know, I was really kind of getting exhausted at this point and I had two small children. So I just kind of decided to, to quit. Um, I had a couple of bad experiences. One with, with we played a, a, a wedding reception, people that we I thought were my friends. And they, the, a transformer blew in a tree outside of the, of the um, venue. And we had to end the, the show early through no fault of ours. And they didn't pay us. And it just happened to like hit at a time when it was like, it just wasn't looking like, you know, this project was really going to get signed or go anywhere or do anything. And, and uh, you know, I had raising two little kids on my own because unfortunately their father chose a music career in, in Europe over, you know, being part of our family. So I was just like, maybe I can't do this anymore. Was that and still the bomb squad? This was the Bob squad. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, you know, I felt bad, you know, cause I, I listen, I love you guys, but maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe you guys can get back with Javier and cause Javier had actually gone on to, uh, he, he had played with Derek trucks band for a while, mm -hmm. but then that was, he was, you know, kind of at this point when I left the band, um, I think he was kind of ready to go, to go back with them. I said, well, maybe you guys can pick up where you left off with Hob. I says, I just, with my kids and, the way things are going, you know, being in a big band is a lot of mouths to feed. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore. So I quit. And about three weeks later, I got a call from Mickey Hart's manager saying that the vocalist who, a female vocalist who was supposed to go on a um, 30 day tour with them had just at the last minute backed out. And could I do this tour and would I be interested in singing with the Rhythm Devils, you know, which are the drummers from the Grateful Dead, basically. And Mike Gordon from Fish on bass and Steve Kimock on guitar, who was like a protege of Jerry Garcia. And I was like, um, uh, I, I guess. Next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Mickey Hart. And I, I, I said, well, listen, you know, I kind of explained my situation to him a little bit. And he said, well, what if we get you a nanny? You think you could bring your son on the road? Because my son was only 10 months old at this point. And I was like, um, yeah. I didn't think I really could pass that up, you know? So I went on the road and, and you know, sang a, a lot of different songs, but, you know, primarily Grateful Dead songs. Um, but uh, they, they also had some very eclectic music in that group as well. Some brand new songs um, that Robert Hunter had written lyrics for and that Mick had... Uh, come up with with drum tracks for and then he showed me in the music where the counter on the on the, the machine said okay when it says this this is where I want you to come in and here are the lyrics that Robert Hunter wrote so first day of rehearsal was I wrote four songs with Steve Kimock with Robert Hunter's lyrics and Mickey Hart's tracks like that was the first day of rehearsal and it was four days of that and then we went on the road and it was like 50 songs in the repertoire that I had never sung before. And I'm going to tell you, Grateful Dead fans are brutal. This was in the days of the internet really being kind of born as far as message boards and stuff. And people were just crucifying me on the message boards mm. because I was reading out of a, a lyric book. Uh. 
you know, what could I do? I just, I did the absolute best I could, but I didn't know that, that I really was, you know, doing a great job or anything. I was, again, not confident. This was not really in my wheelhouse, but I just did my best, you know? And I'm going to tell you, those guys were so fantastic to me. They were just so great. They let me bring my son on the road and, you know, we got the whole back of the tour bus with the playpen in it and everything. And, and that was really uh, an amazing experience. And, and I got like a, a whole new family out of it from, you know, the Grateful Dead. And, and you know, they're just tremendous people that like, I, again, I never dreamed that any of this would ever happen. I never even tried for any of this stuff to happen. I, it was just such a gift. And I like I always felt just completely honored, overwhelmed, humbled. And I just I learned a lot from these people who are like you know giants in the business yeah wow so you know especially when you were singing that stuff that was kind of like uh thrash funk or whatever mm -hmm. um how do you keep your voice in shape you know and and keep it from uh fraying if you will you know how do you how do you take care of your instrument well i drink a lot of water water is i, I can't under you know, you can't overstress really the importance of water. Um, I've been a voice teacher for the past 15 years, um, private lessons. And, you know, so I, I really do talk about this a lot with, with my voice students, that the most important thing is that you're hydrated and that you don't coat your vocal cords with stuff like ice cream and, and uh, cheese and really, you know, um, mucus forming, stuff like that. So number one, you got to keep your instrument you know, hydrated and clean. And I, therefore I don't drink, I don't drink any booze. Um, during the shows, I feel like that, like I'm working and I, it's not time for me to party. It's time for me to be, to work. And if I'm going to sound great, it's, I'm not going to drink. Um, cause I, I have recordings of me from early on when I first started with tongue and groove, they were playing five nights a week. And that's where, how I learned how to make my voice last. And at that time, when I first joined the band, I was smoking cigarettes. I was drinking whiskey in the bar, you know, trying to get rid of my nerves about, you know, going on stage and singing. As soon as I would get to the gig, the first thing I'd do is I'd go up to the bar and I'd get a shot and a beer and I'd have a cigarette. And I had to, you know, record all the shows because I was the backup singer and I was still really learning my parts. You know, because when you're not singing lead on everything, you got to really know your parts and come in the right place for back backing vocals. So I had a lot of songs to learn. And so I was recording every show. So then the next day when I was sober, I'd listen back to these shows where I was drinking and smoking. And I was like, oh, my God, I sound horrible. You know, and by the third show of the week, I'd be losing my voice. So I just I said, I, I want to be you know the best i want to have a really strong voice and i'm gonna to have to do something drastic so i quit smoking and drinking when i was 27 and i and i don't at all anymore um because i feel like that's the number one thing that ruins your voice is cigarettes and booze and cocaine and i never liked cocaine i always thought it was a waste of money uh, you know when i was I, I don't think the last time i did it i was 18 and i remember being like what's the big deal about this i think this is crap and then if you listen to the difference between like Stevie Nicks voice in the seventies and in the eighties, that right there is just like a perfect case study of you should not do cocaine. 
if you want to be a really great singer. <laughs> I, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of examples of that out there. That's just one. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so and, and I feel like, you know, just by being, you know, taking care of my throat and my body and uh, getting good sleep, that's another one, which is hard when you're on the road, you know. Can be hard to make sure you got enough sleep. I hate air conditioning. Air conditioning makes me sound terrible because um, it it gets my all in my mask. It makes everything swell up. So I'm like the worst on the road because I'm constantly turning the air conditioning off and opening the windows. <laughs> and people would be like, "But it's so hot. We need the air conditioning on." I'm like, "I know, but it's, it's hurting my face. I can't deal with it." You know. How how old are your kids now? Uh, my sister, my sister, <laughs> my daughter is 16 and my son is uh, going to be 13. I have a 14 year old. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I split the difference with you, but um, yeah. Kid, do they have any vocal ability? Yeah. You know, my daughter, um, when she was in kindergarten, she sang a song from high school musical that she had really taught herself. Cause I mean, at that point, when she was five, I was pretty much, you know, teaching voice after school every day. The last thing I wanted to do when I came home was give another voice lesson. But meanwhile, while I'm out teaching other people's kids how to sing, my daughter was home learning it off of, a, you know, watching the the uh, the Disney Channel and listening to this to the uh, High School Musical performer. Um, oh, what is her name? can't think of her name right now but she literally just blew the whole talent show away with her rendition of uh of that song from high school musical it's like the love song you know and it was she was the cutest thing she was five years old she was the youngest kid in the elementary school talent show and they even in the audition people were crying because they couldn't believe what a good singer she was but as she got older you know she kind of was less interested in the singing and more interested in playing keyboards. She, um, I, I showed her a few little things, but then she went on YouTube and started watching tutorials and far surpassed my ability on keyboards now. And then just last year she took up, I, I bought her a guitar when she was seven. She's pretty good on guitar. And uh, so she played, and then she played flute in school as well, which was my, flute that I had played in high school we kept it and I gave that to her so she so she can play a few instruments now plays ukulele and she picked up the bass last year and uh, she sat in with my I have this um, uh, Zeppelin cover band called Jen Zeppelin and she uh, she got up and actually for the very first time ever played on stage with me uh, in that project she played she played bass on a couple Zeppelin tunes uh, last wow. January and that was big for me. That was really a big moment. I was That's so great. proud of her. <laughs> she did great. And my son, I just got him a drum set for Christmas last year, which, you know, he likes it. You know, he's, we'll see. He's also a good singer, though, too. He can sing really well. Wow. <laughs> much, much to my chagrin, I can't carry a tune. Um, but my son, fortunately, can sing. So oh, great. Uh, he's playing alto sax. Excellent. Yeah, which I played sax as well when I was younger. So, Great. yeah, yeah. Um, now, I want to ask you how how many nicknames do you have? I saw pipes, and I see on the Bernie URL here you got the Sonic Voice 
<laughs> so what's the story with the nicknames? Well, um, Pipes came about um, our tour manager and front of house sound engineer is a tremendous guy named uh, E, exclamation point. <laughs> he is the best. Um, and he used to say to me after the show, you know, the number one thing I hear people saying out in the crowd, you know, about you is like, wow, check out the pipes on that girl. Wow, that girl's got some pipes. And so after the show, he started coming up to me and, you know, putting his hand out for like, you know, to slap him five. He'd be like, nice show, pipes. And I would, and I, I you know, I'd you know, slap him five and I'd be like, yeah. So that's kind of how that came about. People calling me that. And then, uh, with Bernie, he told me that, you know, I, if I was going to join the Woo Warriors, that I had to have a nickname. And did I want to pick one out for myself? And I was like, why don't you pick out the nickname for me, Bernie? You know, I wanted him to pick it out, you know. So, uh, you know, it was like during the first tour, he started, uh, well, he knew I was Italian. So he, he started calling me Sonic Voce. Which is, you know. Okay, that voice. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's all right. He started calling me that on stage. Sonic Voce, Sonic Voce, because that's the Italian word for voice. And, uh, you know, I, I that kind of stuck for a while, too, while I was in Bernie's band. <laughs> so just, then, the two, then, just the two then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Only two aliases. I mean, I don't know. There might be more, but <laughs> I, I, it hasn't reached my ears yet. <laughs> That's what people are saying when I'm not around. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, with all that, those experiences on the road and those trials and tribulations and hard knocks on the road, was there one or two that you can look back at and think that, whether bad or good, just sort of really unforgettable, whether it's with Deep Banana Blackout or one of the other bands? Oh yeah. Um, okay, I think it was when we deep and out of blackout. You know, we we basically were not a band for about three years, uh, and the reason that we reunited as a band was because uh, gathering the vibes had gotten uh, James Brown as a headliner. And they asked us if we would reunite to open up for James Brown. And, you know, of course that was- uh, Sorry, that was JB. <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. I mean, who could say no to that, right? So Sorry, Godfather. Playing, yeah, they got the original lineup back together. And uh, it was, uh, it was pretty incredible. You know, we were, we were just uh, like, it was like pinch me. I just, and we hadn't played together in about three years, but you know, leading up to those three years that we didn't play together, um, we played together just constantly for about five years, you know, like every single night, just, and you know, over and over, riding around the van, listening to ourselves, Play, you know, from the night before and then right, you know, on the dat recordings. And uh, so getting on stage and playing those songs for the first time in three years after having not having played together at all, 
we were listening in a way that we hadn't really listened to each other in years and appreciating each other the way we hadn't in years. And it was, it was just musically such a great night. I've listened, I've seen the video of it a couple times and I was just amazed at how fantastic it sounded and, and all those songs that we wrote that, you know, when you play something over and over again, night after night, after night, after night, you know, you kind of, it loses something. It loses something in the familiarity of it, you know. You know what to expect or where it's going to go. Even though we did a lot of improv, the parts that I would sing on, you know, they were just kind of, what I was doing always stayed the same. The guys got to open up and do all kinds of different stuff in their soloing, you know. But I wasn't able to really, really improv or do anything like that until, you know, having this experience of getting up on stage with them, opening up for James Brown and singing those songs again after not having sung them for a few years. What year was that? It was almost like rediscovering it, 2003. It was almost kind of like rediscovering the music and, you know, it kind of brought this freshness to it that just made it really exciting you know we we're we we're ecstatic to to be doing that show so wow so that was that was that after this um release the Prince was was the record they put out with hope claiborne who uh was basically my replacement uh she is a terrific singer multi-instrumentalist songwriter and I thought, you know, she was an excellent choice uh, to, to fill my spot when I left to play with Bernie. So that was um, after that. So they, they did that. They, they opened for the Almond Brothers on tour with Hope. And that after that, they just decided, you know, we've been doing this a long time. And I think they kind of got worn out with the whole experience. So that's why it's taking a few years away and then coming back to it was so exciting. You know, it's really uh, for everybody on stage. I gotta tell you, this this one is good, release the grease, but it's not as to me, it's not as dynamic as the rowdy. Yeah, the rowdy dude's rowdy. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just deeper, deep banana blackout. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, another cool thing, memory that I have that was so interesting was they did this thirty-year jam thing at. Uh, at the Gathering of the Vibes 2001. And at this point I was not in Deep Banana Blackout anymore, but they were on stage for the Super Jam. And it was us and Chris and Tina, uh, Tina Weymouth from uh, Talking Heads, Top Town Club, Bernie on keys. And, uh, oh, let's see, we had, Oh my God, there were so many different people on that show. Um, Mark Ford from the Black Crows. It was a big jam. And basically it was to celebrate um, Jimmy, Janice, and Jim Morrison. So Raymond and Zarek started off this, the show with the, with the Doors segment. And then they brought me up to do the, the Janice segment after that. And I kind of was the, the singer for the Janice segment. But it was just such a phenomenal all-star group. Oh, George Porter, I think, was we had like double bass, double drums, and uh, you know, section, like three organ players on stage, and it was wild. It really, it was absolutely insane. And 
uh, we got to do, uh, you know, Peace of My Heart. And um, we ended with um, me and Bobby McGee. And when they, like, hit the audience with that white light, and you thought that there were, like, literally 20,000 people of the audience singing along, I, I have to say, that was, that was the most insane rush ever. That was really, really awesome. And then the, the best time, though, I think, uh, doing, like, original music and, and just being surprised by the fact that people knew us is when, when I was in the Bomb Squad and we played at the Montreal Jazz Festival and we played in between Dr. John and the Funky Meters. <laughs> and we played all original music. And I had written a couple songs that had Spanish lyrics and French lyrics. So when I walked off the stage, I had all these French Canadians walking up to me speaking fluent French. And I was just like, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't speak all that well. Slow down. <laughs> Slow down. But um, I was overwhelmed because I didn't think that people in Canada knew who we were. And, you know, we got to play the Montreal Jazz Festival. It was insane. So that was another pinnacle performing moment. And what year was that? That was 2005 with the Bob Squad. Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> wow, so many amazing musicians. I'm uh, just like, wow, okay, yeah, right. I've seen so many of the ones you mentioned you know, play different things. And uh, George Porter has been on the show. Love that. Um, but um, I got to be in a band with George, too, because the second year that um, I played with Mickey Hart, it was actually the Mickey Hart band. And he became the bass player for the Mickey Hart band for the last year that I was in it. So I got to go on, to, on the road with George Porter and hang out with him every day and hear all his stories and Man, what a great guy! And I just love that guys like him and 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 uh, Leo, who you mentioned, and yeah. all the guys you mentioned, but especially those real older generation guys are still doing it. I know. It just you know, to, and to be on stage with these heroes, you know, like I just recently did a did a show with Leo um, with uh, it was at Garcia's at the Cap, you know the the. Garcia's is right next door to the Capitol Theater there. And we did a show with him there. And, you know, he starts playing the beginning of um, Just Kiss My Baby. And I just, I just, was, I, oh, I can, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I just felt like, like a surge of electricity. You know, how many times I've, I've covered that song with other people, you know, but to have him, playing that guitar part and just, ah, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's just something like, yeah. You know, speaking of guitar, you know, you, you talked a little bit about fuzz, but I just want to bring him up one more time because, um, you know, from when I saw you guys in the first place, uh, I was impressed. I, I like the way he, his style really mixed up, um, you know, a lot of like strumming technique with soloing. Yes. And uh, I found that to be very unique and I got his, a solo record, and um, when you're talking about people like Schofield and Warren Hayes, uh, Haynes and these guys, I was thinking, I was wondering, you know, if you know, who are a couple of guys that Fuzz kind of emulated? Um, I think that he would say Django Reinhardt, <laughs> and uh, 
which is much more apparent in his like more recent projects that he's been Caravan of Thieves and and uh, Rolla, these bands that he had after Deep and Out of Blackout. Um, I also think that Melvin Sparks, uh, the guitarist Melvin Sparks, had an influence on him. He actually played Melvin played it, a show with us when we the first time we opened up for Maceo Parker. Melvin was in the band with us, which we were amazed because he played with like Curtis Mayfield and like, you know, he's, he's one of the, the cats. And that one year for his 55th birthday party, because I became pretty good friend with Melvin, as did all the guys in Deep Banana, um, that uh, I got invited to sing at Melvin's 55th birthday party. And it was like Bernard Purdy was on drums and McIntyre Murphy was playing in the band, and it was just incredible, you know. Like, got to play the house that Jack built with Bernard Purdy on drums. I mean, that was like, that was incredible. Oh, right, so back to Fuzz. I think that Melvin had a big, you know, because like you were saying that 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 rhythm playing, that mixing up the strumming with the soloing. I, I think that's a big Melvinism. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think I. Yeah, I think, and you know, we were, I was really a stickler to um, with Fuzz when we used to play Cosmic Slop back in the days when we before we were a fully original band. You know, I would always be like, I know you have to play that solo note for note, you can't like you know make up your own part there. Those those notes have to be played exactly, you know. And he did, and same thing with like Magic Brain. So I think all of the P Funk guitarists, Blackbird, and and um. Um, uh, Hampton, Hazel Hampton, and right, exactly and Hetty Hazel, of course I think that they really, they had a huge influence on him as well Cosmic Slop is one of those songs, and there's not that many really that I just never ever get tired of hearing no. it never gets worn out for me I know, I know. <laughs> so all, I feel that way about all Funkadelic really, I mean, I've I never get tired of it, you know, and uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens next when George retires. I um, I've had such a great opportunity to um, uh, when I first put my new band together, which is called uh, Jen Durkin and the Business, which is a little bit more rock. We don't have a horn section. It's a little bit more rocking than uh, stuff that I've done in the past, and. Uh, we did so I, when I first moved back here. We did some shows with the Sons of Funk, Rico Lewis and Garrett Chider, and those guys singing with them is like it, it's incredible. I mean, you know, nothing against anybody I've ever sung with in any other band, but singing with those guys really just like it just those songs, you know, with their voices, it just it just for me it really. It brings it alive. It makes it reminds me of my time with Bernie and uh, singing with Greg and Donna and Bernie, you know, and uh, so I always love playing with those guys as well. So be interested to see, you know, what happens after George retires and, and how yeah, I hope he, I hope he keeps doing the studio stuff at least. And of course. Yeah. Yeah. I had, when I had, well, you, I think you said you saw the Lige um, interview or at least part of it, but when he was on, it was actually like maybe just a couple of weeks before George announced he was retiring wow. from the road. And um, I asked him in that interview, you know, if he thought it would continue on. 
And he said he had a hard time seeing it, you know. But now, since George Hess says he's retiring from the road, I feel like it is going to continue. Yeah. With those new generation it. guys. I know. We all would love it. Yeah, we all want to see it go on, you know. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Jan and the, and the business. Uh, talk a little bit more about, you know, what you're doing currently. Bring us up to date um, with what's happening in your in your musical life today. Well, I'm, you know, just we put that record out about four years ago called The Business. And it was kind of a return for me. Um, I spent about six years living in Arizona. Um, my father's retired out there. And I wanted to just really focus on my kids because I had been on the road so much and taken them on the road. I just felt like, you know, they kind of deserved to have like a normal childhood and not be slept all over the place or be at home with grandmas and babysitters because I'm away all the time. And, and it was hard, honestly, it was very hard to do that. Um, I felt it, it was really hard to get used to, you know, that, but I just put my kids at the, at the center of everything. I, I was on their schedule while they were little. I, I just felt like, you know, they're only going to be young so long. So I didn't really do anything much of anything. Um, I had a few students out there. I played with one band. It was, a, again, another big, you know, nine-piece funk ensemble. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't anything that we could do all the time for money because it was such a big band. But it was called uh, Hot Birds and the Chili Sauce. And it was the three, were three girls that were, you would take turns being the lead singer. And, uh, you know, it was all like stacks and you know, funky soul music from the 70s. And it was really fun, fun band, but didn't really do much of any writing or recording for those six years that I was living in Arizona. So towards the end of that, you know, my kids were getting older and I felt like I wanted to come back to the, to, it was, you know, Arizona is really out there. It's like, there's no, nothing really nearby. Like I would do, Occasionally, I'd, I'd fly to, you know, Colorado or, or LA or, or Vegas to do shows with people every once in, in a while. I was maybe doing, I don't know, five or six shows a year. It's hot out there. Yeah, yeah. And playing with Deep Banana Blackout and our usual, you know, four or five gigs a year, you know, as well. So, and, you know, it wasn't really a lot of, of writing going on. I was really kind of just living for my family at that point. But that came to an end um, around 2014. I made the move to back to, to Connecticut and back to Bridgeport, where I had just a huge network of musician friends. And now, you know, everybody's like in their 20s, 30s, and you know, they're 20, 30 years older than everybody. But it doesn't matter because I, I don't look my age, thank God. And uh, you know, I kind of felt like, okay, this is like a whole new group of people now that I could play with and do shows with. So, you know, of course, it's kind of because, you know, of the tribute band thing being as popular as it is. Um, the Jen Zeppelin thing, you know, have a, an incredible drummer. Um, her name is uh, Caitlin Califas. She's... Um, I think like maybe 23 years old, but she also plays drums for Cindy Lauper. Like she's an incredible drummer. She really makes that band, you know, happen for me because like I said, 
the drummer is the most important part of the band, especially for Zeppelin. So and I really appreciate her and her father is the bass player, Chris. They asked me to join the group a, a couple of years ago. We've been doing, you know, maybe a handful of shows a year. And then the same thing with my friend, uh, Jordan Gian Greco, who has played with this psychedelic breakfast. Um, he's also played with a lot of other friends of mine that, you know, I've known him through the years. But we put this act together called Steal Your Funk, which is basically half Grateful Dead and half like P-Funk and Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown tunes. And we just kind of started it off as like this fun Tuesday night thing, you know, like during the week. But then we got, you know, Doug Wimbish, the bass player from Living Color. He lives in Hartford and we played with him a couple times in Steal Your Funk. And I'm telling you, the way that guy does Grateful Dead music, he makes it super funk. You know what I mean? Like he really, like my idea was, all right, we're going to play these dead tunes, but not like the dead. We're going to play them like they're like funk, you know? And that was my idea of, you know, what Steal Your Funk would sound like. But unfortunately, so many people are so really, really good at emulating Grateful Dead music and playing it just like the Grateful Dead that it was hard for me to find players who could really handle that. And Jordan, keyboard player, he could totally handle it. So could, so could Doug. So I've been able to do that a handful of times a year. And so in between that, I, I have my, my original band, which, you know, it's harder for us to get paid, frankly. You know, the better paying gigs are the tribute band stuff but it's much more artistically um emotionally spiritually satisfying uh to to do the original music because you know for me like i said it's really about that and i enjoy being an entertainer but i i really you know the reason i went to music school and the reason that i stay in this business is because you know i want to make records i want to you know get better at writing and composing and recording so I just keep trying to pursue that. And it's hard because, uh, you know, you being an indie, indie musician and self-produced, uh, unless you have lots of money behind you, it's slow going. So you just got to keep making the donuts. And, and then when you get enough bread together to kind of release a single, I'm just kind of going like that now. I'm like, I'm not so interested in trying to get a whole album out at once. Now I'm just like, if we're going we're gonna to do a single, we'll release a single. So I think that's the, the only thing that I'm kind of doing differently than I, than I did before, which was, you know, I was thinking about things in terms of this recording project is an album with 12 songs or however many songs, you know. And, you know, because I put out a couple of records with the Bomb Squad, did a couple of records with um, some projects that I had in between that. And then this last one, um, again, you know, is another 11 song compilation so now i'm kind of thinking of things in terms of releasing singles and seeing if i can get better at uh, you know internet marketing and promotions and and then finally and this is not really a music project of mine but it is a it's kind of like what you're doing I actually think you have a really cool setup here um, the way that you do these interviews um, i really only saw your interview for the first time last night when i was checking it out but um, I have, since I joined, uh, let's see, it was 2006, I want to say. Yeah, 2006, I got an HD camera, which back then was a big deal because now everybody's got an HD camera in their phone. But 
back then, this was like a big deal. And it also had this really good Sennheiser condenser mic in it as well. So I was getting some really cool interviews with people that I was on the road with. Uh, like when I, because uh, I got the camera gifted to me uh, by a friend of mine who's a huge Grateful Dead fan when I went on the road with Mickey and those guys for the first time. She's like, you have got to get some of some this backstage footage and like some interviews and people and stuff. So ever since 2006, I have been compiling interviews with people that I've worked with, that I've met over the years, you know, and people like Jackie Green and Susan Tedeschi and George Porter and Mike Gordon. And, and uh, you know, I've gotten some of the guys in P-Funk and Clip and, and Bernie, of course, and um, Fred and, and Greg Thomas. And uh, um, I got... Um, So there's so many. I mean, I literally have like 60 interviews. And, you know, a lot of these people are just, you know, people, guys from Deep and Out of Blackout, guys from the Bob Squad, you know, people that I've been friends with for years and I've been playing with for years. And I, and I ask them all the same three questions. And what I'd like to do with this huge ar archive of interviews that I have and, and uh, performances is um, I would like to edit them together and, and make and show everybody their answers to each of those three questions, mostly questions about their main influences and inspirations for music. Um, their um, challenges that they face being a musician um, and trying to you know make their living uh, as an artist. And then the third question I always ask, which was the last one you asked me, which was you know what are you doing now and what are your hopes for for the future you know, kind of thing. And someday I would really love to, you know, go through all of that footage, of like hard drives filled with stuff and, uh, you know, start putting it out there. So I think this is the year uh, I've got some people interested in, you know, backing me uh, so that I can get this, you know, all kind of onto uh, uh, like a, a pilot almost so that then I could go through and maybe even continue doing more interviews in the future. But it would be, you know, all uh, kind of along those same lines of, uh, of, of what you're doing. You know, I think it's great. I, people are very interested, to, I think, to hear these stories and uh, behind the music kind of thing. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this. I'm, I'm glad you contacted me. And, and I'm very inspired by this, actually, to, to, you know, finally bring this project onto the front burner in my life, you know. So yeah, that's, that's that's great. I'd love to see some of that for sure. Oh, you know, yeah. it's a huge undertaking, though, as you know, to like go through it and edit and and, and all that. But um, it's been twelve years that I've been compiling these, you know, because of course when I when I played with Doug and and Leo last year, you know, that was like a little super group thing that I was in, and I did some interviews with them, and boy, they, those guys, they just had some really interesting things to say, uh, and I'd love to get those interviews out there yeah. well you definitely gotta give me a heads up once you start doing that absolutely <laughs> well um jen i you know it's been a, a great uh, time really getting to know you better and uh, is there any other sort of messaging you want to get out there to fans or you know how can they keep up with what you're doing yes um jendurkin.com is is my website and uh, my band is Jen Durkin and the Business. And we have uh, four 
or five new songs that haven't been recorded yet that we are going to record at the Stone Church. So it's going to be, again, like a, a kind of a live recording. Just because I played there once last April, I think it was, and I was just floored by the sound. I mean, it really was just the most incredible. It's an old church. You know, it's wooden. It's got the high vaulted ceilings. And it just, the sound stage, the, the equipment and the way it sounds in the room, I just said, this is the place to do a live album for sure. So it's time again. It's been 20 years since I did a live album. It's time to do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, if it's anything like that, Rowdy Duty, you're going to be <laughs> making something very special. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite Zeppelin song to, to do? Um, uh, Misty Mountain Hop is awesome. And uh, the one, one that we did just recently that just like gave everybody chills and people were flipping out was the Rain Song. You know, it's kind of a mellow one, but... and. Uh, um, I, I love Heartbreaker. Heartbreaker is a great one. Yeah. <laughs> can, can your guy replicate that solo? Oh yeah, yeah. Sammy Blanchett is uh, is the guitar player in Jen Zeppelin. He's terrific. He's there's nothing that guy can't play. Like he's just he's young, super young, and and uh, you know got a lot of fire in his playing. You know, and it's funny when you we were saying fiery before. You know, I've read a lot of reviews about my singing and my voice and i'll tell you fire is like the number one word that people use to describe me but i have to say that that's really true of sammy his playing is very fiery it's kind of like fuzz fuzz is really fiery playing as well too you know well it's, it's been a pleasure jen thank you so uh, much thank you i'm gonna say goodbye for now but uh, hopefully we'll connect again soon oh yeah bye <laughs> how ironic is it that such an amazing singer should be so largely unsung? Hopefully, through Truth and Rhythm, she'll reach a wider audience that can discover Jennifer Durkin's magical pipes. We had such a fabulous time that we wound up hanging out for quite a while after this taping. It was then that we both realized we had omitted some important details. I neglected to ask her how the unusual moniker Deep Banana Blackout came to be, and she forgot to mention a few other important people who have influenced and inspired her. Fortunately, I was able to get that info to share right now. So the name Deep Banana Blackout came to her in a dream. The dream caused her to wake up laughing. And in that dream, the group's guitar player, Fuzz, spoke the name to her. And so the rest is history, Deep Banana Blackout. As far as singers who inspired her, we talked during the interview about lots of women, but neglected to mention any of the fellas. Turns out, according to Jen, that Cyril Neville, George Porter Jr., and Gary and Garrett Scheider were huge influences and inspirations to her. And telling those tidbits just now made me feel a little bit like Casey Kasem on the American Top 40. In any case, I feel that the story is now finally completely tied up in a neat bow. Even though Durkin continues to carve out her career path. Once again, enormous special thanks to her. Thanks to her for being on the show, being so open, candid, and flat out fun. Also, as always, a sincere thank you to you, the viewers, and the listeners. So much appreciated. And of course, once again, subscribe. I can't hammer that enough, and I'll keep doing so. 
Many of you are faithful followers who subscribe, but you know what? If you subscribe now, you get the show early. So that's sort of a new thing that um, we've started here. And you can get the show up to an entire day before everybody else if you subscribe. So make sure you do so. Tell family, tell friends, need that support. I appreciate it so much. And also write me. I'm hearing from so many guys out there, so many gals out there, so many folks in general, the good, funky, soulful jazz folks. Keep it coming. Let me know what you like about the show. Let me know what else you'd like to see, who else you'd like to see. Got a lot of irons in the fire, but you know what? I still come a little harder if I get more requests in for that particular person or band. So keep them coming in. Love it. And with that, as always, until next time, this is Scott, Dr. GX Goldfine, and saying, Keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one, one, one. <laughs>